0: gathered together today. The thing I love about that video is that family is such a picture of the kingdom. If you look at it, you know, the guy said United Nations, but uh, the kingdom being so diverse with different folks, and then also each one of us having our own needs and different hurts and all the different stuff that comes along with us, and we were rescued into God's family. And I don't know if you realize this, but today's Orphan Sunday. Every church is all around the triangle, around America, around the world. that are celebrating Orphan Sunday. If you're a guest with us today or if you've never filled out the connection card we've got a special gift for you if you take out the first time guest kiosk we've got a book that we want to give you called orphanology by tony Morita, is a, a local pastor here in town and uh, we're going to hand out this book to you teach you a little bit more about this stuff and one of the things that orphan sunday is supposed to do is just raise awareness of the great orphan need that there is in our world and there are over 100 million orphans in our world doesn't matter whose stats you look at that is the number the lowest i think i've seen is 120 i saw one stat this week is 153 million orphans in our world. And we don't think about that a lot in the United States. We don't have orphanages. We don't have the homes like that oftentimes. We've got foster care. And did you know that just in this United States, just in this area, um, 27,000 students, young people, will age out of foster care this year. And that means that They've graduated. They're 18 years old. Some of them graduated. I think it's about 54% of them graduate or get a GED. Um, Only 2% of them end up getting a bachelor's degree, but they leave that system, and they still don't have a family, which means they don't have anywhere to go home to for Christmas. It means they don't have anybody that ever said, I want you. Many of you, your lives have been impacted by adoption. I know that's true whether you've been adopted or you know someone's adopted or you have adopted someone. If you're just a believer in Jesus Christ, um, you know about adoption because you've been adopted into God's family. It's one of the reasons why we make a big deal about it is because that's really what it is a picture of is it's a picture of the gospel. That God came for you in your most vulnerable state, in your most neediest moment, and rescued you out of that, provided you with salvation, brought you into his family. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5 says that if you've decided to become a follower of Jesus, he predestined you for adoption. And so it's a picture of the gospel. And some of you have seen adoptions before. I had a privilege of seeing a guy, a 48-year-old man, uh, be adopted into God's family this week. It was over at uh, Dickie's Barbecue. We were talking and I uh, ended up talking about Jesus Christ, and he prayed to receive Jesus Christ as his Savior, which was uh, amazing. And when he was done, I said to him, do you realize that God only had one begotten son? It was Jesus, and that you've been now adopted into his family, which makes us brothers, I told him, because I've been adopted into his family too. And so that means you're not just some guy that comes to our church or lives in our community. I said, you know, if you have needs, that's different for me. We're part of a family now. And so we are all together, those of you who are followers of jesus christ we brothers and sisters and that's because of god's adopting you into his family and so today um we make a big deal about orphans and we're going to talk about orphan care and foster care and adoption and some of those different things we're gonna take a little break from the book of acts that we've been in and uh, we're gonna be in the book of james today so i'm gonna pray for us i told my friend from dickies that i would pray for him he said will you pray for me on sunday he didn't know i'd pray for him in front of the whole church on sunday um, but his name is wayne wayne's unable to be here today and I told him I'd pray for him for the next couple weeks, and uh, when you meet him, he'll be here eventually at church, and if you bump into this guy named Wayne, he tells you he trusted Jesus at Dickies, and you can say, I remember when our whole church prayed for you, and if you feel led to pray for him, you can pray for him. I'm going to pray for Wayne, that he would grow in grace and grow in maturity, I'm going to pray the same thing for all of us. And so let's pray, and then we'll open up the scriptures together. Father God, I thank you um, for our friend Wayne, our brother in Christ, um, those of us who know you. And I pray for him. I pray that you'd grow him in grace, you'd grow him in obedience, you'd grow him in knowing how to worship and follow you. I pray that you would make him a mature believer in you, that he would continue to take steps of faith. And I pray the same would be true for each one of us, that we'd grow in your grace, that we'd grow in maturity, that we'd become more and more the people you desire for us to be. And I pray as we have the word implanted in us from your scriptures this morning, that you'd change us like a seed that's put in soil. I pray you'd put the word in our hearts and you'd make us different as a result. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to be in James chapter 1 this morning. If you have a Bible, you can go and turn there. James comes right after the book of Hebrews. We're going to start in verse 22. As you're turning there this morning, I want to start by just doing a simple survey with you. I've got three questions I want to ask you, and it'll be interactive. And so if you want to answer the questions in the affirmative, just pop your hand up in the air. I'll just tell you this. I'm fine if you yell and hoot and holler. I've got four kids at my house. I'm used to noise, okay? So you're not going to bother me. To stress. Sometimes at church, people are like, I don't think I can say anything. You can say stuff. I'm totally fine with that. And so here, the first question I want to ask you is this. How many people here think that lying is wrong? Raise your hand. Amen. We've got an amen already. All right, we're, we're rolling, okay? I think almost everybody raised their hand. Now, second question, you might be able to feel this one coming. How many of you lie? You are currently lying, maybe. How many of you lie sometimes? You've ever lied in your life? Raise your hand. I am raising my hand not as an example. I am participating with you. I have lied too. Now, is it not interesting to you That almost every—I think everybody probably said they thought lying was wrong—and almost everybody said that they've lied before. The rest of them can deal with that guilt later. Listen, (laughs) is that not a blatant inconsistency? That we think that it's wrong, but yet we do it. So why do we do it? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. Why do we lie? Sometimes it's for expediency; it gets things done more efficiently. Sometimes it makes us look better, and so that's why it's really selfish. Have you ever told yourself that you lie to someone for their benefit? You ever, you ever thought like they, they, they we doing this for their good is what we tell ourselves now We don't want to be on the receiving end of that usually But we, we say it when we're giving that to someone and I remember one time I think i've shared this with some of you before uh, That I had a, a public speaking course at a public university and we were going through it I think it was an ethics speech we had to give and this one guy gave a speech about how lying was not only acceptable He said lying was beneficial He starts to give his speech and gives introductory comments and facts or whatever he had at the beginning. And then the meat of his speech was a story he told about taking his girlfriend's cat and having the cat put to sleep. He said his girlfriend loved the cat so much she couldn't bear to do it. So he's doing her a favor and he takes the cat into the vet, pays the money, does the paperwork, all that stuff. And they take the cat into this room and he saw which room they took the cat into. And so he walked over by the door and there was a little window on the door and he peeked in. He said things were not going well. The cat had gotten off the table. The nurses and doctor were trying to chase the cat around the room. Stuff was falling places. Finally, one of the nurses grabbed the cat by the throat, slams it down on the table. The doctor takes this huge needle, sticks it in the cat. You know, the cat makes this terrible noise, and he's just standing there shocked. He leaves. The cat's dead. Mission accomplished. goes back to his girlfriend. She says, how did it go? <laughs> it went great, honey. That's what he told her. And he said, because... It was for her benefit to lie, and he's talking about how lying is a good thing. Now, how many of you here, survey question number three, would like to be lied to? I mean, if it's your cat? I mean, you may, right? No? I'm not seeing any hands. I see a little bit of movement. We'll count that. We're Baptists, right? <laughs> There might be like two or three people that want to be lied to, but what are we saying when we say that we're lying to someone for their benefit? Aren't we saying that they can't handle the truth? We've heard that statement. It's kind of a famous, very quotable statement. Tom Cruise is questioning Jack Nicholson on the stand, military trial. He says, I want the truth. And Jack Nicholson says, you can't handle the truth. That gets quoted all the time. What is Jack Nicholson saying to Cruise in that situation? You want me to lie to you. You would rather have this. You'd rather put your head in the ground and not know the facts. You'd rather think the lie than believe the truth. That's what, you're, and that's what we're saying. If we think we're lying for someone's benefit, but as the recipient, none of us want that to happen. So we know that we think lying's wrong. We know that we all lie, and we know that none of us want to be lied to. Interesting conundrum, we're in. The reason why we don't want to be lied to is because we know how dangerous deception is. None of us want to be deceived. You think about all the trials that are out there, and if you just Google like false advertising cases, which is one of the things I looked at this week, there are all kinds of products that promise things they don't deliver on, and then they get sued. In fact, some of them promise benefits, and actually people claim that there are detriments. I read about one product. I won't say their name because the lawsuit is still happening, but you can probably find it yourself, where they promise benefits. They're being sued right now because they're bl- being blamed for multiple deaths. It's dangerous stuff, deception, as you think about it. Every problem we have in our world can be tied to deception. Cancer, root cause, lie. Tragedy, root cause, lie. Whether you're talking about car accidents, whether you're talking about national tragedy, whatever whatever you're talking about, a divorce, all tied back to a lie. Broken families, abuse, lie. The very fact that there's AIDS in this world comes from a lie. The fact that there are orphans that exist that don't have parents is rooted in a lie. It all goes back to the garden where sin entered the world, because when sin entered the world, everything was broken. It's not how it was designed to be. And, and, and how, what happened to the garden? Sin started with a lie. Surely God doesn't keep his promises, Eve. And she believed the lie. And then there was false hope given. Isn't that kind of how it works? It starts with, you doubt God, and then I'll give you a false hope. I'll give you a false promise, a not real promise, that if you pursue God outside of his plan, then you can find satisfaction. Eve, she believed the lie that wheels have been falling off since. Deception is incredibly dangerous. Today we're going to talk about one of the most dangerous of all deceptions. It's self deception. And so we know that we lie. We know that we want to be lied to. Here's the challenge today. The question is to ask yourself Am I lying to myself? And so that's what James challenges us with. In James chapter 1, if you have a Bible, I invite you to join me there. James chapter 1, we'll start reading in verse 22. James, we met him last week actually in the book of Acts where we were at james is the half-brother of jesus although didn't place his faith in jesus until after the resurrection he becomes a leader in the church of jerusalem we believe that he's writing to a group of believers right now that were from that church they're outside of palestine they're scattered because there's persecution taking place and they're living in poverty remember that it'll be important later they're living in poverty right now and what he's warning them against is to not be deceived Notice it in the text. Deception has been brought as part of this context. In verses 6 and 7, you get the concept of deception for the person that's a doubter. Verse 14, you get deception. Verse 22, verse 16, verse 22, and verse 27. We're going to start reading in verse 22. It says, do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Verse 23, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like, and then we get an analogy, like a man who looks at his face in a mirror after looking at himself, he goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Contrast, but the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. Verse twenty-six: If anyone does not, if anyone considers himself religious, and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself, and his religion is worthless. 27 religion that god our father accepts as pure and faultless as this to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world what james tells them here he starts off by just talking about listen if you believe something there will be actions that follow that your belief dictates your behavior and that's our big idea today that your belief the things you say that you believe are true will dictate will make will force an action to take place will force your behavior your belief dictates what you do And if you think about it, that's not just like a spiritual truth or a principle from the Bible. That's true in every area of life. We do everything we do based on something we believe. If you take your money and you put it in the bank, you believe. You might not believe they're going to give you the best interest rate, but you believe they'll keep it safe. If you don't believe that, you put it in your mattress. You do something else with it. Either way, what you're doing is dictated by what you believe to be true. That is true in every area of life. Since this is Orphan Sunday, let me give you an orphan analogy. I've heard this from uh, different families that have adopted. Many orphans, when they come into a family, they don't realize how loved they are. They don't realize the protection and the care and the provision that's going to be given to them because they've been taught for the first part of their life a different type of type of deal. And so many orphans, when they first come to a family, they don't believe that the family is going to, keep, going to feed them three meals a day and snacks in between and all that stuff. And so what they'll do, I've heard this in multiple stories. Russell Moore's got a book. He shares some of this stuff. They'll hide food in their high chair because they think this might be my only shot to eat. So I'm going to hide the food. So their belief dictates their behavior. They'll eat food out of the garbage. They'll go and steal food from siblings, hide it in places around the house until they come to the place where they start to trust their new parents. They're going to feed them regularly. Belief dictates behavior. And it's true for us with everything that we say about the scriptures too. Every sin that I do reveals a belief that I have. I don't trust God in some area. Same thing's true for you. Every act of faith that you take, every step of faith that I take, reveals something I believe to be true about God. It's an area where we do trust him. If I say that I believe what Jesus said, and Jesus said the two most important things, love God, love your neighbor, and then I'm a jerk to my neighbor, guess what? I don't really believe that. Your belief dictates your behavior. If you say that you believe what Jesus says, and Jesus says it's better to give than it is to receive, but you're greedy with your stuff, your resources, then you don't really believe what Jesus says, because our belief dictates our behavior. I remember being taught this in, in seminary. I had a professor, Howard Hendricks, Dr. Howard Hendricks, a great teacher of the Bible, and uh, remember one day he's standing up and he's telling us all this stuff that we're going to learn and he's kind of laughing he said you're going to when you graduate you're going to get a master's of theology like anybody masters theology which is the study of god by the way and he's kind of making fun of that idea he says you're going to take all these classes and all these theologies and ologies and learn different languages and when you get done they're going to ask you to sign a piece of paper that says what you believe and then he said if i want to know what you believe i want to see your checkbook and i want to see your calendar that'll tell me everything i need to know you can sign off on all the ologies and languages and all other kind of stuff that's all great head knowledge but if i want to know what you really believe then show me how you live is what he's saying what are your priorities checkbook how do you spend your time your calendar it's the same guy who said to us i don't want to know how many times you've been through the bible i want to know how many times the bible's been through you is there a transformation taking place? That's what James is talking about when he says, don't merely be listeners of the word. Or some of your translations might say, don't just be hearers of the word. That word hearers or merely listeners is the same word that's used for auditing a college course. I don't know if you've ever audited a course before. It's a great deal. You just go and listen, and uh, then you get credit for the course. You don't have to do any of the assignments. You have no real responsibility. You don't have to take the tests. Have you ever thought about that's how a lot of people treat their faith? You're just supposed to go and listen. You might take some notes, but you don't have to take responsibility for what you receive. You don't have to do anything with it. Assignments, the test will still come, and, and James talks about the tests. It's a great chapter. If you read the first part, he calls them trials and tribulations at the very beginning of this chapter. The tests are still going to come, but you won't apply your faith to it. And James is saying, don't audit the faith. Don't just listen to this stuff. And so deceive yourselves into thinking that you've been transformed. He says in the the next part, he says, but be a doer of the word. He says, do what it says, the NIV. Now, I'll just say this. I love the NIV. It's one of my favorite translations, English translations of the Bible. Um, But they miss a word here. I'm not saying you have a bad translation of the Bible, but it's just they kind of give the Nike version here. It says, do what it says. Just do it. Kind of like you hear information, fact. Then you take an action. Fact, act, fact, act. That's not how it works. There's supposed to be a transformation that takes place. The word that they miss here is the word be. Poiete, Greek term, be a doer of the word, becoming a doer of the word. You become and continue to become a doer of the word. The English Standard Translation, another good English translation, translates it. It says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. There has to be a transformation that takes place. It's not just you hear information and you take action, fact, act. It's that the word is implanted in you, implantation, there's a transformation that takes place, and there's an implementation that takes place. So not fact, act, it's implementation, or implantation, and then transformation that leads to implementation. Totally different. If you skip that middle step, you're in trouble. It's a dangerous place to be. It's like being in the place where you hear the word, you don't do anything about it. If you just hear the word and you do something about it, there's no transformation. That's scary too. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus talks about it, and will notice the action versus the transformation. Matthew chapter 7, he says, Thus, by their action, fruit, you will recognize them. Verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, they know the right information. Wait a minute. Will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who action does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Verse 22, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, right information. Did we not? Action, prophesy in your name, and in your name, action, drive out demons, and action, perform many miracles. And Jesus says, then I will tell them plainly, you didn't know me. You missed the transformation. Away from me, you evildoers. You knew the facts. You took the action. You missed the becoming. What James is saying here when he says, be doers of the word. He's saying when the word's implanted in you, it does a transformation that at your heart, at your core, at your emotions, in your mind, at your soul, at your spirit becomes different. That doesn't happen for a lot of people. Why? Go back to the word that's used here, deceiving ourselves. We're deceiving ourselves. James says here, verse 22, don't be deceived. That word for deceived there is a word that would be used for false reasoning, that you have information, you might be right information, you've come to wrong conclusions, we see it all the time. If you watch politicians, they'll take the same facts and come up with different conclusions. And you just sit there and go, well, who was right? I like that guy more. You know, how do you decide? And they saying that you, you've got information, you're coming to wrong conclusions. It's a mathematical term that means to miscalculate something. And let me tell you something you can afford to miscalculate your checkbook. It might not be a fun mistake. You can afford to miscalculate your taxes. That would be less fun. You cannot afford to miscalculate your relationship with Jesus Christ. That's too big of a deal. And I will share with you just a pastoral moment, my concern for you and for our church and the church in America is there are many people, and the longer I do this, the, the, more, the heavier this becomes in my heart. I've been pastoring here for about seven years. When I started, this was not that big of a concern. It is a big concern today to me that there are a lot of people that have been enculturated into Christianity, they can answer the information. They've been educated to the point where, you know, sometimes when we share the gospel, we ask this question. It's a great question uh, to ask the question. If God were to ask you, why shall I into heaven? What would you say? Most people talk about their good works. And so you're trying to figure out what that answer is. Here's the deal. At the end, there's no quiz. It's not a test. It's not that you know the right answer, Jesus, by the way. What happens is, did you know him as he transformed you? We see that in what he says. Away from me, I never knew you. And my fear, concern for people is that people have been educated to Christianity. They know the right answers. People have been enculturated in, they've been culturalized in. Yes, I'm using words, I'm making them up. Hopefully, they're effective for you. And culturalized into, even assimilated into Christianity. You don't do certain naughty activities, and you do good activities. You know, you sign up for a Southbridge Serves, you volunteer at some place, you hold babies, you do this stuff, and, and you know the right answers. You know, Jesus is the answer. And, but you're dead inside, you're not regenerate. The scripture says you're without hope and without God. You can know all the right answers, but if you've been made alive in Christ, that's, that's what has to happen. Listen, here's the deal with the kingdom. You don't get educated into the kingdom. You don't get argued into the kingdom. You don't get convinced into the kingdom. You don't get assimilated into the kingdom, culturalized into the kingdom, and culturally related into the kingdom. You get born into the kingdom. Transformation has to take place. If you think I'm talking to you right now, I probably am. Here's what you need to do. Beg God to save you. Because you're not a Christian because you were born into a Christian home. You're not a Christian because you live in the south part of the American country. You're a Christian when you've been born again into the family of God. And that happened because God sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, so you could be adopted into his family. If you doubt whether that's true, you beg him, and then here's what else I challenge you to do. Go spend some time with someone you think really has it. Not a cultural Christian, and you can probably sniff them out if you are one. Go to someone that you feel like has something you don't have and start spending some time with them and eventually ask them, what is it about your spiritual life? Don't be deceived. You cannot afford to miscalculate this one. We're all deceived in different areas, though. We all have blind spots. Think about great people throughout history, the blind spots, Thomas Jefferson. He wrote those words that are just famous words for us, especially as Americans. All men are created equal. The guy owned slaves does that not seem like a blind spot martin luther great reformer a pillar father of our faith in some senses reformed had broke off from the bad things that were taking place in the catholic church and started teaching grace alone faith alone is someone we look to for so many of those teachings anti-semitic you can read his teachings sounds like a blind spot so you and i have blind spots too so how do you discover them? Well, you go to the Word. It's talked about as a mirror here. It shows us ourselves. And you know what? It's a mirror that reflects. It goes to bone and marrow. It goes to the heart. It shows us our heart. And not only that, but then other people. You have to have people in your life that are willing to speak truth into your life. People that care about you enough to tell you your blind spots. Don't be deceived. You can't afford to be deceived. Now, there are some people that are deceived the opposite way. Now, the majority of us, we think better of ourselves than we should. There are some people who actually think worse of themselves than what Scripture actually says in fact that guy that i told you wayne that trusted christ this week the reason why i was having a meeting with him was because of that he was somebody's one you know we talk about 10 acts at our church and and all of our almost all of our members have somebody that they're praying for and sharing with and serving and trying to lead to jesus christ well one of our members was doing that with wayne i mean praying for him had shared jesus with him told him all that he didn't need me to come and tell him about jesus but this guy thought he was too bad for god and so he wanted to meet with me, you know, like a professional Christian. Like, if I go tell that guy all the bad stuff I've done, then, then I'll know that God doesn't really care about me. And so we ended up, we met, we went to have dinner at Dicky's Barbecue. We sat down. I knew that's why he wanted to meet. The gentleman that was part of our church had been trying to lead this guy to Jesus, told me that. And so I started the meeting, and he's just so thankful that I'm meeting with him, that I'm taking the time. He's been here before. And all that stuff. And he says, I just can't believe that you're meeting with me. And I said, listen, you're special. And he said, no, 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 I'm not special. He starts telling me some of his bad stuff. I goes, listen, God never made a person he didn't love. So God loves you. If God loves you, that makes you pretty special. The creator of the universe cares about you. That makes you pretty special. I had his attention. Continued to go on and tell me his story. and Told me about all the bad stuff he did. And told me where he stood with God. And and I told him, here's the bad news. You're going to hell. And we were having a candid conversation. You know, Most people just look at you like you're a jerk i can't believe you just said that this guy says back to me you're telling me i'm going to hell and i'm a professional christian i said yeah i am he puts his head down on the table like you can't believe it he's shaking he's physically shaking he's shaking emotionally and i said but here's the deal it's not because you've done worse stuff than i've done it's not about the stuff you've done Listen, you mess up one time you're on your way to hell it's because you don't have jesus christ i told him about how jesus christ came to this earth to die to pay for all those sins to pay for all of sins it's so those that place their faith in Jesus they have a relationship with him. He said to me, what do I do? <laughs> it's like the Philippian jailer. What must I do to be saved? <laughs> oh, we'll have another meeting. No, I told him right then what I said. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. You believe in your heart that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead, and you confess with your mouth that he is Lord. You will be saved. It's a promise from God. And he prayed to receive Jesus Christ, and he's done. I told him about how he'd been adopted into God's family. John chapter 1, verse 12, everyone who's a child of God is given the, or everyone who believes in God is given the right to be called a child of God. And they implied, by the way, if you haven't, you're not. And then he says, he starts to get this deal. I say Ephesians chapter 1, you know, you're adopted into his family. Now we're brothers, and we're talking through all this stuff. Then he says to me, here's some stuff that needs to change in my life. He didn't need to change stuff in his life in order to be loved by God. He needed to change stuff in his life because he needed to get acceptance from God. It was, now that I believe this stuff, there's some actions that need to be transformed. Because our belief dictates our behavior. You saw immediate transformation. That's what James is talking about here. Don't deceive ourselves. Isn't God says some incredible stuff about you? You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You're a son or daughter of the king but you're not perfect. He's doing a transformation in you and there's things that need to happen in your life. Verse 23, he gives this analogy, which is almost really a ridiculous analogy. Look at what he says. He says, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. (laughs) Does anyone else think it's interesting? He says, a man who looks in the mirror. Not a woman, not a person. He says, because it wouldn't be believable, James, if you had said someone else. If, no, anyone who looks at a mirror and then forgets what he looks like, how foolish, no one even does that. Especially when you consider the kind of mirrors they were using, they were polished metal. So polished silver, polished bronze. They're not the mirrors like we have, where you can look and you can see, ah, I got something my teeth, all right, good. I'm, and you could forget real quick. This is like you have to angle the mirror. You have to study. There's a, there's a, a continual... To do all that work to see yourself and then to forget... Who would do that? How foolish. But he doesn't say here, is like the person who looks into God's word and then forgets what he read. He says, does not do, doesn't take action. That's why so many times people are like, I was, I'm, I was ready, I was thinking about trusting Jesus, but then I decided maybe next week, and then it kind of fades, and you get more and more callous. So You've got to do something about it. He gives a contrast, verse 25. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law, that's God's word, that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he's heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. Your belief dictates your behavior. Not only that, your behavior reveals your belief. What you do reveals what you truly believe. Great exercise would be to consider doing what Prof. Hendricks challenged me and all his other students to do. Take your calendar, take your checkbook, lay them out. What do they say to be true about you? These are the activities you do. These are the priorities you have. Then take them and lay them next to Scripture. Are they consistent? I mean, if you say that you believe the Bible, does your life reflect that you believe the Bible? Because your actions, your behavior, reveals what you truly believe. And there are a lot of practical atheists. James gives us some examples of things to test ourselves with verses 26 and 27, to see if we really believe this stuff. Says verse 26. If anyone considers himself religious... Now, when we read religious, a lot of times we think bad. James didn't know some of the... The reason why we say religion is bad, it's really something that we've done as an American culture, because what we do is we say, well, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses are religious, and Buddhists are religious, and Muslims are religious, and so we're going to say, we, have a, we don't have a religion, we have a relationship with God. All true stuff. James never heard that conversation, Okay? We've come up with that. America didn't know about that when James wrote this book. And so James is saying religion is a good thing here. These are the outward acts of worship that we do. So you could read here, if anyone claims that he's a worshiper, if anyone claims he's a follower of Jesus, if anyone considers himself a worshiper of God and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his worship is worthless. If anyone considers himself a follower of Jesus, makes a profession of faith and does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, His profession of faith is worthless. It means nothing to God. Why does James go to the tongue? He talks about these works and doing things. It's interesting. He doesn't talk about quantity of works here. He doesn't talk about the quality of works here. He talks about the tongue. The reason why is because the tongue reveals the heart. He goes on in James chapter 3. You can read that on your own. He talks about how dangerous the tongue is. He talks about how with it we praise God and we also curse men. And he says, my brothers, this should not be. But what he talks about is that all those things come from a wellspring, from, from a, uh, the depth of our hearts. Jesus says the same thing. In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus says it's what comes out of a man's mouth that makes him unclean. Because what comes out of a man's mouth is what comes from his heart. Verse 19 says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. The activities are just revealing what's already true. And so what James is saying when he says test, the first test, you want to know whether or not your faith is genuine? You want to know if you really believe this stuff? Your tongue will tell you. Because your tongue reveals to you what's in your heart. Sometimes we say stuff and go, well, that's not me. It's just a slip. Probably revealing something. Slander, lying, bitterness, anger, filthy things that we say about other people. They reveal something that's going on in our heart. Now, all of us mess up we'll have slips of the tongue. But when it's continual, you're a gossip, you're a slanderer, you're doing these things on a regular basis, you, he's saying that worship is worthless, that you, what you claim to be true and what you claim to believe is not what you really believe. He gives two more tests in this passage. We spend the majority of our time on the second one because of being Orphan Sunday. He says, religion, worship that God our Father accepts is pure and flawless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. That's the second one. The third one, to keep oneself... From being polluted by the world, here it says, "Here, you want genuine worship that's not worthless is this. That you'd care for those that are needy. Do you care for those in their greatest times of need, when they can't give anything back to you? That's who the widows and the orphans were in this time. Oftentimes, you see throughout Scripture when someone's describing the neediest people, they talk about the widows and the orphans. And remember, this is before welfare system. This is before foster care. This is before there was life insurance. This is before all that stuff. If you were a widow in that time, you didn't have a job opportunity." you're an orphan, you don't have family, what are you going to do? Well, how are you going to get ne- your next meal? They're the most vulnerable people in society. Today we could add to this list people who live in a third world country. Refugees, immigrants, lots of different people groups that we could add. Because it's Orphan Sunday, we'll emphasize the orphans here, and I'll tell you, this isn't just one verse. God's care for those that are vulnerable and needy, like the orphans are in our world today, is all throughout Scripture Let me give you a few verses to strengthen your theology on this. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17 through 18, God says this. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. But he doesn't treat everybody the same. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, that's the foreigner, giving him food and clothing. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 17 through 18. Do not deprive the alien, foreigner, uh, or the fatherless justice. Or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Now, you can take the cloak of other people as a pledge. Don't take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. You treat her different. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Why? Because of what I've done for you, is what he's saying to them. Remember what's been done to you when you were at your most vulnerable state, when you were in need. Remember you were slaves in Egypt? And the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That's why I command you to do this. Listen, my plan for you, Israel, he's saying in the Old Testament, is that you would reveal me to the nations. And so here's what I want you to do. Do the thing that I've done for you for other people. And that's what he tells us. We've been rescued in our greatest time of need and our greatest vulnerability. He's saying, I want you to do that for other people. The real test of your faith. Are you going to love the way that I've loved you? See, we love God. He first loved us. And then we love others. Love your neighbor as yourself. So the question is, do you love the greatest test? Do you love the neediest of the needy? Here's a great verse. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 17. He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. Wow. And he will reward him for what he's done. There's the motivator for you. And Isaiah, the prophet speaks about worthless worship. He says, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams, of the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and the lambs and goats. He could say, us, So listen, I've, been, I've seen you attend enough Bible studies. You've underlined the whole deal. You've memorized sections. Got it. Uh, you can learn new languages. That's fine. You're praying prayers and you're singing songs. They don't mean anything to me. I want you to do this stuff. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17, same chapter, a few verses later, he tells those people, learn to do right, seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Come now, let's think about this. Come now, let's reason together, he says, and look at what he says next. Listen to what I've done for you. Though your sins were as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. Listen, I've done this for you. Now this is what I want you to do for other people. Same thing. Jesus speaking to his disciples. His disciples are freaking out. He's leaving. He's just told them that. John chapter 14. As he's getting ready to go, they're going, can we come with you? No, you can't come with us. Where are you going? Going to the Father. You know me, you know the Father. And they're, they're freaking out. And he says, listen, I will not leave you as an orphan. I'm going to leave you out there on your own to figure this out on your own. I'm sending the Holy Spirit, he says in that chapter. I'm coming back for you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to guide you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to give you everything you need physically. I'm going to give you everything you need in wisdom. I will bring verses back to your memory. And then he goes on. You read John chapter 14 through John chapter 16. And he starts telling them all the stuff he's going to do for them. I'm not leaving you like an orphan. That's not how he's treated you. That's not how he's treated me. Just leave us here. Paul says, Ephesians chapter 1, I've alluded to this verse several times. Ephesians chapter 1, if you're a follower of Jesus, he says, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. He goes on to say, and you have access to every spiritual blessing, that you are son or daughter of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. That's what he's done for you. And what James is saying here, when he says to care for the widows and the orphans in their distress, he says to visit them, some of your translations. That doesn't mean like go to the orphanage. Hey, I'm glad you're here. Uh, kiss some babies. Visit means it's the language that's used of God when he comes to rescue his people throughout Scripture. The Israelites, when they're in slavery of Egypt, us, when we are in our sin and we're dead in our trespasses and we're separated from him. He uses it in the Matthew passage where Jesus says, what you've done in the least of these you've done to me. He says, you visit the orphan. You visit the child. You visit the homeless. You visit the, he's thinking, when you go and you rescue, you care for them. Jesus talks about this one time. He tells a story, a story of the good Samaritan. But even if you don't know the Bible, you probably know the story of the Good Samaritan. If you've heard the phrase, probably the Good Samaritan before, somebody does something good for someone, you're like, they're a Good Samaritan, especially if they do something for someone that can't pay them back. But when Jesus tells that story, it's interesting. He's just going to ask the question by an expert in the law. What is the greatest commandment? Jesus says, what do you think it is? <laughs> Great question with a question, right? The guy says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Great answer. The guy asks him, who's my neighbor? Jesus tells the story. Before he talks about the Good Samaritan, though, it's interesting, and it's not by accident. Jesus talks about two men that come by where there's a guy that's in great need. He's been beaten. He's been robbed. He has no money. His clothes are off of his body. You can read it. It's in Luke chapter 10. He's bloody. It says he's half dead, so he's dying on the side of the road. First guy comes by as a Levite. That's a religious leader. Next guy comes by as a priest. That's also a religious leader. They're both probably on their way to church. They're on their way somewhere to worship would be the idea that we would have. Not only do they not help... They go out of their way to avoid the situation, put their head in the sand, pretend like the problem's not there. And they go to worship. Guess what? Worthless worship. Not only a positive example in this passage, but also a negative. Then Jesus talks about a Samaritan coming. Now when we hear that, it's kind of endearing. We think to ourselves, oh, a Samaritan, that's a good thing. We heard good Samaritan's purse or good Samaritans. and that's, We think good stuff. That would be so highly offensive to a Jew to say a Samaritan is coming. It'd be like saying to an American citizen, somebody from Al-Qaeda was the next guy down the road. There's a terrorist coming. And so if a Jew heard that a Samaritan was the next one on the road, they're thinking, he's going to finish him off. He's going to like cut the guy's neck. You know, It's done at that moment. But then they said that the Samaritan comes, and he goes to the man and bandages his wounds, uses his own oil as a anointing there to help the man. Takes him, he cares for him. He's rescuing him in his need. Puts him on his own donkey, he's protecting him. Takes him to an inn, he's giving him provision, guidance, care, comfort, all the stuff that God does for us. Goes to the inn and says to the innkeeper, you take care of all of his needs. I'm leaving you money. If it's not enough, I'll pay more when I come back. I'm going and I'm coming back. Sound familiar? And then Jesus says, the guy who was the neighbor was the Samaritan. And that's a word of love. You say you love God? You say you love people? And James says, here's a test. What do you do for the needy? Same test Jesus gave. And so what would you do if the neediest of the needy were sitting in front of you today? one church faced that issue church in florida um just in this past september you may have seen it there's a young man davion henry he's been on the news been on different national programs uh, because of what he did davion henry is a 15 year old young man and has was born basically into foster care he was born his mom was in jail when he was when birth was given to him so he went right into foster care and for 15 years of his life has uh, not had a family nobody's ever wanted him and so He's had people that have been nice to him and all those types of things, but he's always had this hope that his mom was going to come back for him, get him, when she got out of jail. In June this past year, he went to the library, got on the Internet, and looked his mom up to see where she was at and what was going on. And the first picture was her mug shot from being in jail and uh, cocaine use and petty theft and just small crimes that she had done associated with the drugs. And then the next headline was her obituary. She died. And so with that died Davion's dream and hope that she would come get him but he still wanted a family. He told his caseworker, I think we should go to a church and I'll ask somebody there to adopt me. And so she said, okay. And they decided they were going to go one Sunday morning to a church, show up, St. Mark's Missionary Baptist Church in Florida. Church of about 300 people. They got there, Davion didn't want to get out of the car. He said, I don't want to do this now social worker, took him out of the car, straightened him up said, listen, this was your idea. You wanted to do this. Straightens his tie, straightened his suit, tells him to go in. He goes in. He says, it seems like everybody there has a family except for him. Sits there picking at his fingernails and hoping the pastor gets done soon. <laughs> Can you identify? Uh, <laughs> thinking about what he might say. When the pastor comes to the end of his message, he shuffles his way up to the front, starts to tell a story and how he wants a family. What would you do? What would you do if I brought Davion or another orphan? It wouldn't be hard to find one. There are over 100 million in the world. Up here this morning, says, hey, this guy, he needs an orphan. He needs a, a family. He's an orphan. He needs a family. What are you going to do? Some of you are thinking, is this guy going to bring an orphan up here? What if I did? What would you do? Davion's received over 10,000 responses, people who want to help, people who want to adopt. But there are over 100 million orphans in the world. What are you going to do? because your actions reveal what you believe let me give you some ideas we've done different things to give you tangible ways to respond to sermons before painted out envelopes and said here's some things you can do to serve people in our community here's things ways you can be generous we had generosity challenges today i'm going to just read you some ideas and you just reflect with the lord right now and ask him do any of these resonate with your heart one you can adopt probably obvious open your family like the families we've seen in this video open these videos open your family Open your heart, open your home to those folks. Bring them in and uh, tell them that they're wanted. Same way that God's done for you. Some people won't do that. Some people, for whatever reasons, are not able to do that too. Don't feel led to do that. Here's an immediate and simple one. Sign up for the 5K today. If you sign up for the 5K today, it's $10 less than normal. Let me tell you what works, how this happens. We're going to run. It's going to be fun. Somebody's going to win. Probably won't be me. So if you see the bobblehead guy out there, probably don't pick that one. But uh, the reason why we're doing the whole deal, we're going to have a great time together. But it's the reclaim race. It's reclaiming God's heart for orphans is what the reclaim title means. All the money that's raised, whether it's through sponsorships, people that run in the race, or if you just want, by the way, if you just want to give money, they'll take that too. So if you're not here next weekend, they'll still take that. Here's what happens. We have a fund. Some people don't know this at our church. We have a fund called the Abba Fund. Abba means father. Father for the fatherless is where that comes from. And uh, we want to help families that are members of Southbridge that are trying to adopt uh, to be able to adopt. So financing that is part of the deal. Sometimes that's an obstacle for people. And so we do interest-free loans through that fund and you get the money and then you pay it back onto the agreement that you make with the organization that we have that handles all that stuff and then the money goes back into the fund so we can use it again to help somebody else to try and help as many orphans as possible and so you can do something through the reclaim race. If you want to give money directly, like I said, to the ABBA fund, you can do that or if you know somebody's adopting, you give money directly to them. That's a way to do it too. How about this one? Why don't you go overseas and start an orphanage? That's an option. Oh, I want to, no, before, just think, well, what if, does God want you to do that? He's done it before at our church. Matt Misty Hedspeth the members of our church. They weren't professional missionaries. He was a real estate agent. She was a lawyer. They visited Panama and then saw some of the problems that were there. And now they work to streamline adoptions through Panama. And they work with different orphanages to help them take care of uh, orphans that are already there. And they're working on a home. They're building a home. They've purchased a building there. Um, they've done some of the renovations, they need some more finances, you want to help them finance that, you can help them too, or you can do it yourself. Uh, if you want, you can go on our, our website under the give section online, they're one of the options, and the money goes right to them. So you can, you can be a part of that if you'd like, or you could go yourself. Foster care is an option, transition care is an option. Here's one a lot of people don't think about. You can go physically, you can adopt, you can help financially. What about helping prevent there from being more orphans? Preventative care. You can do things like partner with the ministry, like Women at Risk International. That goes to women that are vulnerable and susceptible to having a child that they wouldn't care for, the people that would sell their bodies, and provide them with jobs of dignity, give them opportunities in life they wouldn't otherwise have, preventative care. Uh, You could also uh, provide the opportunity for life, and even mention life care. Life care is one of our strategic partner ministries, and you could... Go and volunteer there and talk to people about the opportunity of still having a child. They're thinking about terminating that child's life, killing, murdering that child, and then they could instead give that child life. And then, through one of the other organizations in town, Amazing Grace Adoptions, different places, they'd have an opportunity to be adopted. You could volunteer at Hope Rains. Um, you could say, Well, who are the neediest of the needy kids at Hope Rains? And I'll say, All of them have needs. Um, you could ask specifically to work with orphans if you'd like to. Here's one everybody can do we're doing a clothing drive for an orphanage that's starting in Uganda. There's going to be a table out in the lobby today as you leave you got questions about any of these things foster care adoption any of this different stuff go out to the table that has a green tablecloth on it and they'll give you information doesn't mean you have to adopt someone doesn't mean any of that stuff you're getting information if you want to be part of the clothing drive they've got little t-shirts that have been cut out and the with sizes of children um, that need clothes there's an orphanage starting in uganda that needs clothes the kids are going to come they're literally not going to have any clothes and so you could put a shirt on the back of one of these kids a very tangible expression. Something that we can could, we could all be a part of. And so you could take one of the shirts from their table, bring it back, and we'll be collecting them, I think, from now until Thanksgiving, if you want to be a part of that clothing drive. Um, if you want to go on a trip to that orphanage, there's a trip to Uganda through Amazing Grace Adoption Agency. And if you want information about that, to go there and actually work, meet some of the orphans, work at the orphanage, um, you could go out to that table, get that information. These are just a few ideas. You're only limited, really, by your creativity, because the need is before us. Interesting thing that James wraps up with in verse 27. Don't be polluted by the world. What he's talking about there is don't be polluted by the world system. Don't buy into the value system that the world has. Do you know why? Because it'll stop you from doing the very things that he's challenging us to do here. You need more of this. You need more of that. It's interesting that James here is talking to, remember what I said at the very beginning, he's talking to people that are living in poverty. And he says to them, Hey, go and give to people that can never give back to you. That's how we'll know that this is real to you. What do you think he'd say to us? He's so kind and tender. In James chapter one and verse twenty-seven, this is hey, your religion's worthless if you won't at least do this. I think if he were speaking to us, he might speak more like the prophet Jeremiah does to a king. In the book of Jeremiah, I'll just read this to you as our conclusion. This is a wicked king. His father was a righteous king. Jeremiah chapter 22, verses 15 and 16. Does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? Is that the point of you being king? Did not your father have food and drink? It's not wrong to be rich. He said he did what was right and just, but you're supposed to use it. So all went well with him. Verse verse 16, he defended the cause of the poor and the needy. And so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord? Is there not a special way in which you know me when you do the very things that I've done that you can't know me apart from doing the very things that I've done? Is that not why Paul rejoices in his sufferings? Because then he gets a glimpse at the suffering that Christ experienced on the cross. I get to know you better when I experience the things you've experienced. And God's saying, you want to know me, then do what I've done. You want to represent me and reveal me, then do what I've done. What do you think James would say to a bunch of rich Americans? You say, well, I'm not rich. Everybody knows somebody richer than them. So if you've got shelter and you've got a family, you're blessed. Why are you blessed? To accumulate more and more cedar, more and more cedar closets, more and more clothes, more and more stuff? Or does he bless you so that you can bless other people? Here's the deal. We've all admitted today already we're liars. Don't lie to yourself. What we do reveals what we believe. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would not have the word implanted in us and then go out and be no different. How foolish would we be?